This is uh, page Gear Theory 3, Unit 6, Part 1. So let's talk about uh, flight physiology. Because some of you, some of you will go on to become flight paramedics, hopefully. And um, so this is just a very basic intro to flight physiology. Uh, you can do a flight physiology course through Orange if you want. I think it's all online and I recommend doing it just so if you want to take that next step um, to working on a helicopter or an airplane, you've got that opportunity. Um, so uh, let's talk about some of the basic gas laws affecting patients uh, with altitude. So starting with Dalton's law. So Dalton's law uh, says that the, the total pressure of a gaseous mixture is equal to the sum of the partial pressures of the individual gases. So we know the um, atmosphere is made up of uh, roughly 23.9 percent or sorry, 22.9% uh, oxygen, 78% nitrogen, and traces of other gases. And um, those gases exert a pressure on, uh, on the Earth's surface, equivalent to about 760 millimeters mercury at, at sea level. And um, that pressure diminishes with altitude, and we'll talk about that. So, um, so at higher altitudes, the percentage of oxygen remains the same at 21%, but the molecules are more dispersed. There are fewer... Um, uh, atmospheric gas molecules and um, uh, so as a consequence um, there's um, a problem with um, oxygen diffusing across the alveolar capillary membrane because uh, it, it diffuses across uh, the alveoli based on a concentration gradient and a pressure gradient and if that pressure gradient is diminished then um, you become hypoxic and Early aviators discovered this with hot air balloons when they went up in altitude and lost consciousness and eventually came down and were either frozen to death or dead from hypoxia or, you know, brain injured from hypoxia uh, or just sort of floated away and eventually crashed into a mountain and died. Um, and uh, uh, that's when they discovered sort of the hard way, the, the effects of um, ascending into altitude. So. Um, <coughs> So as I mentioned, diffusion of oxygen uh, across the alveolar-capillary interface is driven by a uh, pressure gradient and a concentration gradient. So atmospheric pressure is equal to uh, 760 millimeters of mercury at sea level. We have a vapor in our lung, humidity, right? Because it's not dry, it's very wet. And it has a constant pressure of 47 millimeters of mercury, um, no matter what the altitude is. And um, I think I've got an image here rather than drawing it on the board, but basically, um, let me just draw it on the board. So we've got uh, the alveolus here. We've got 760 millimeters mercury, and you can subtract 47 from that right off the bat. Uh, and in the venous system, We have a partial pressure gradient of 40 millimeters of mercury. Right, so um, if you do the math, what you end up is uh, with 21% uh, of atmospheric pressure is um, oxygen. So that's 160 um, uh, millimeters of mercury. So PO of 160. So atmosphere, atmospheric oxygen is PO. Um, alveolar is P capital A O and venous or arterial is P small a O. 
Um, so 160 minus 47 uh, gives you 113, and then 113 over 40 uh, gives you a, a partial pressure gradient of 73. Now, the numbers aren't important. Uh, you don't need to memorize them. You should know that atmospheric pressure is 760, but I, I don't expect you to do the math. It's really more the, the concept around this idea that um, atmospheric pressure decreases with altitude, and as a consequence, uh, the, the, th the pressure that drives oxygen across the alveolar capillary membrane diminishes, and that's why if, a, if an aircraft, commercial airline, loses pressure gradually, uh, sometimes the pilots and the, the passengers are unaware of the, the pressure loss unless the alarms are going off up the front. But if it's a, if it's a slow leak and the alarm system isn't working, uh, people eventually fall asleep and crash into a mountain and die, right? Which has happened on a few occasions. Pretty rare, but it has happened. So when you um, get up in altitude, so for example, at 18,000 feet, atmospheric pressure drops by half. And so uh, the alveolar capillary pressure gradient is uh, about negative seven millimeters of mercury as a consequence. Um, so that means that 18,000 feet, instead of oxygen moving from the alveolus to the capillaries, it's actually moving from the capillaries to the alveolus. So at 18,000 feet, you'd really be struggling to breathe. Uh, you'd become quite hypoxic. Um, so if, a, if a, an aircraft depressurizes, um, oxygen mass drop down. I'll talk about that in just a second here. So uh, we'll get to that in a second. So at 34,000 feet, atmospheric pressure drops by a quarter, drops to a quarter rather. And um, so the alveolar capillary uh, pressure gradient is negative 33, even worse, obviously. So you wouldn't want a, lo a loss of pressurization at 34,000 feet. And what happens is uh, because the pressure is greater inside the aircraft compared to the outside of the aircraft, um, you've seen those movies where items get sucked out of the aircraft, out of the hole of the aircraft, including passengers if they're not secured. That's not a gross exaggeration. That's fairly accurate. Um, I honestly don't know how much effort it would require to hold onto your seat to keep from getting sucked out of the aircraft, but I wouldn't want to <laughs> experience that. I'm sure there are survivors who can talk about it, uh, but it's obviously pretty serious and uh, always a good idea to keep your seatbelt on unless, you know, um, the side of the aircraft gets blown out where your seat is and your seat just gets ripped out and you're strapped in it, plummeting to your death. You know, that would not be so pleasant. So. Uh, um, uh, so at this altitude, even supplemental oxygen is not going to be terribly helpful. Now, um, if a cabin depressurizes, you know those oxygen masks drop from the ceiling and they look like margarine cups with a, a, a reservoir bag on them. And when they say uh, put the mask on yourself first before you help others, uh, it's not just out of courtesy. Um, if you don't put your mask on first, you become hypoxic very quickly and to the point where you would not be able to make decisions to save your own life. So that's why it's important you put it on yourself right away and then help others like your kid sitting next to you. If you try to help your kid, you're probably going to be dead. So uh, it's a pretty serious situation. So now the, uh, the liter flow for those oxygen masks is about uh, 10 or 12 liters. Uh, not a lot, and um, that oxygen will only last about 12 minutes. 
It's only good for about 12 minutes. So what's going to happen at 34,000 feet when you start to depressurize and the masks come down, um, you put the masks on and the uh, plane's going to go into a very steep descent. It's going to feel like you're plummeting to your death. But the good news is... <laughs> so the good news is, just so you're prepared mentally, if the plane is going down like this, that's a good sign because the pilots are taking the aircraft down to a safe altitude, usually about 10,000 feet. If the aircraft's going down and spinning like that, you're probably gonna die. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Now, quite frankly, um, I don't know how, I mean, you never know how you're gonna handle these things, right? But um, not well. <laughs> if, not well, no. I think if I was pretty certain the aircraft was not going to survive the crash, I probably would forego putting the oxygen on because I'd rather die of hypoxia and lose consciousness fairly quickly before hitting the ground. It's just, but maybe I'm overthinking it because I spent 10 years on a helicopter, right? So you never know. Um, yeah, so there's the margarine cups. You know what they look like. And, uh, hopefully they work. You're supposed to give a little tug on them. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think the tug actually activates them. I think it's just to make sure there aren't any kinks in the tubing because it sits up there for a long time, right? With a, I don't know how often they're maintained, but the tube might get kinked or something. <coughs> you don't want to yank on it too hard because, you know, you, <laughs> you don't want the tubing pulled right out and you're going, oh, shit, you know? That's when you uh, quickly uh, get out of your seatbelt, reach behind you and grab someone else's mask off their face and put it on yourself and just put your seatbelt back on. Now, the pilots, I'll get to your question in a second, Kyle. The pilots have a mask that looks like a jet fighter pilot mask and it actually provides positive pressure ventilation. So when they take a breath, when they draw in negative four centimeters of water, it actually delivers a high flow oxygen into them because it's kind of important for the pilots to remain conscious. <laughs> the rest of us can be unconscious, but it's important for the pilots to remain conscious so they can take control of the aircraft. Which so it's a good thing. Right. Kyle, do you have? Yeah, well, I was just thinking, like I thought I heard that the mask on a plane was just like a chemical reaction to make the oxygen. It's not actually pumped up to oxygen. Well, it might be liquid oxygen. I don't know. You can get a lot more oxygen out of liquid oxygen. Uh, but I'm not sure how it's activated. Uh, but there's, I, I don't know that there's any activation process specifically for liquid oxygen, but uh, anyway. Uh, so Dalton's Law, uh, most commercial airlines uh, pressurize to about 8,000 feet. And um, so even that altitude is not a good altitude for COPDers, as I talked about before. So COPDers have trapped air, they have blebs, those blebs can rupture, they can develop a pneumo. So if you know someone who's maybe doesn't even know they're a COPDer, but they're, they've been a lifelong smoker and they've got sort of a barrel chest and um, I don't know if you have any of those characters in your family, but uh, I didn't mind. Uh, and uh, those people should not be flying. So, um, and when they do, uh, sometimes they get into trouble and have you know serious medical emergencies on the flight or medical emergencies two, three day days later after they come back from the flight. Um, so fine for most of the popu population, except for COPD and even coronary artery disease. I mean, lots and lots of people fly after having heart attacks. I have uh, in the last year and uh, it's not an issue. Um, 
but there's a risk of hypoxia and possibly chest pain for coronary artery disease. Um, Henry's Law is, uh, when I think of Henry's Law, I think of beer, because uh, Henry's Law uh, says that the quantity of, of gas dissolved in uh, a, a mill of liquid is proportional to the partial pressure in contact with the liquid. So you've got um, uh, CO2, for example, dissolved in, in your beer. And when you crack open the bottle, all the um, gases start to evolve out of the liquid and come to the surface in the form of, uh, you know, the, the foam in the beer or uh, a carbonated drink, that sort of thing. And um, the same principle applies um, if you, you know, if you're uh, scuba diving, we'll talk about diving physiology later, but if you're scuba diving and you've got a mix of nitrogen and oxygen, um, um, atmospheric pressure increases underwater and uh, that nitrogen, uh, increasing amounts of nitrogen dissolve into um, the system, the body system. And if you ascend too quickly, it doesn't have a chance to uh, evolve and get absorbed adequately. And so it forms nitrogen bubbles and those nitrogen bubbles become trapped in tissue and joints and creates the bends and all sorts of uh, problems, uh, potentially emboli. Uh, in the brain, the lungs, and so on and so forth. But um, so, but uh, Henry's law also applies to um, uh, gases dissolved in blood plasma uh, if you send too quickly. Um, so, um, I'll come to uh, Boyle's law in a minute. Boyle's law is my favorite law. But um, so, when it comes to hypoxia, there, uh, when you're hypoxic with altitude and um, we, we, you know, we have a, an understanding of these stages, not because people were studied in airplanes and depressurized, but because we have hyperbaric chambers. And you can artificially, you know, you can put people into a hyperbaric chamber and artificially diminish the atmospheric pressure. So get the equivalent of 8, 10, 12, 14,000 feet and see how people react, how they, uh, and so they give people these activities to do, basic activities like sorting out cards and things like that. And, um, the indifference stage is from sea level to about 10,000 feet, also called the physiologic zone. And uh, in that zone, there's a slight increase in heart rate, a slight increase in respiratory rate, and night vision becomes diminished at about 5,000 feet, which is interesting. But it's, it may be, it's usually imperceptible to you and me. Uh, you would have to test it uh, with uh, biometric devices to see the, the subtle change, you know, at, at uh, 5,000 feet, for example. <coughs> so. The compensatory phase is a 10 to 15,000 feet. And I think, um, I don't know this for sure, but I think um, in, um, for just the sm small aircraft that, that uh, sort of amateur pilots uh, fly in, I think over 13,000 feet, uh, you have to have supplemental oxygen, if I'm not mistaken. So that would uh, be applicable mm -hmm. if you were flying in a mountainous area, perhaps. And uh, so the body attempts to protect itself against hypoxia with an increase in heart rate, respiratory rate, and depth, and blood pressure, uh, mental alertness, alertness starts to become impaired. Uh, there's a decrease in efficiency in performing tasks uh, that require alertness. And then the disturbance phase is at 15 to 20,000 feet. And these altitudes will kill you if you uh, maintain that altitude for a long period of time. 
uh, without uh, descending or without supplemental oxygen. So uh, in the disturbance phase, people experience dizziness, um, sleepiness, tunnel vision, uh, thinking is slowed, muscle coordination becomes impaired. And you can actually watch, there are YouTube videos of people in hyperbaric chambers, you can actually watch them. Uh, their performance sort of deteriorate in these uh, these altitudes. The critical stage is 20 to 30,000 feet. Uh, it's called the fourth stage of hypoxia. Uh, and there there's met marked mental confusion, incapacitation, uh, loss of consciousness, usually within minutes. Um, uh, broadly speaking, uh, there's this effective performance time, which is um, uh, not specific to any altitude, but the amount of time an individual is able to perform useful flying duties in an environment where uh, oxygen is, um, pressure is diminished. And then time of use of consci consciousness is the time from exposure to an oxygen deficient environment to the, the time where they, they're not able to take corrective action. And it's uh, really interesting to watch how people uh, respond. And you know what, I just remember now, I've got, I've got this great uh, video, I should try to find it. Um, let me pause this, I'm gonna see if I can find this video because it's in some notes that I took at a conference last year. So let's talk about uh, Boyle's Law. Boyle's Law is my favorite law. Um, so Boyle's Law says that uh, at a constant temperature, the volume of a given gas is inversely proportional to the pressure um, to which it's subjected, which simply means that if you uh, take a balloon from Johnny's backyard birthday party and you release it, uh, as atmospheric pressure decreases, the volume in the balloon, the molecules will become more dispersed, the balloon will start to expand. Start to expand, expand, expand. And it'll, it'll either burst at some point or from the cold, from ice crystals or from expansion or, uh, you know, 20, 30 balloons will get sucked into the engine intake and kill 300 passengers on a plane. Um, like all kidding aside, um, you know, 10 years on the helicopter, at least twice, uh, we've been flying along and everything was nice and smooth and the pilots did one of these, you know, or like this or dive down or, you know, go up. And it was either uh, a shit hawk, which is a seagull, or uh, balloons, right? Because the balloons get caught on the blades, it changes the dynamics and it's, it's, it's either crash or a very, very bumpy ride down to the ground. Uh, but these things get sucked into engines, right? So you wonder why planes flame out them, you know, at uh, certain altitudes. It could be geese or it could be balloons, it could be anything. So, you know, uh, in, in addition, there's a, um, we only have a limited about, uh, uh, amount of um, helium and helium is necessary for a lot of medical diagnostic devices like MRI machines. So uh, my personal feeling is uh, I boycott helium balloons altogether. I would never ever have helium balloons at a party. So and I recommend you don't either if you're conscientious about uh, the future, right? Until we can somehow um, scavenge helium um, in outer space, uh, we're eventually gonna run out of helium. So we're gonna be in trouble. So uh, the cool thing about Boyle's Law is it's easy to remember, right? Gas expands with altitudes, and gas expands in body cavities. Uh, every body cavity that has air, that uh, gas will expand with altitude. So gas in your stomach, 
gas in your sinuses, if you've got a cold and you're, you've got gas trapped in your sinuses. If you just had a cavity filled, you've probably got a minute amount of air between the cavity, be between the filling and the tooth. Take a flight the next day, you could be in excruciating pain because the air is expanding between the tooth and the filling and <laughs> very painful. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what happened to the story, but when I was working in the children's hospital, yeah. there was this little girl who came in and she had been traveling with her family and she had been sick. And she got on the airplane and then when they landed, she actually had, like, had like, a new mom. Mm. They brought her, she was like two or three years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she was pretty sick, but is that like something similar where it's just like, so I guess the question is, how did she end up with the pneumo in the first place? So mm -hmm. like, did she have a pneumo before she got on the plane? And then it, the air expansion in the pleural space just got worse over time? Because I, I had a lady who, um, three days after she flew back from Florida, called us because she was short of breath. And uh, she had a pneumo because uh, she, she was a COPD and she ruptured a bleb. So, so this kid uh, either blew a pneumo or had a pneumo before getting on the plane and then expanded. They used to, uh, because kids, uh, sick kids is world renowned, right? They fly kids from all over the world uh, to get surgery at sick kids. And at one time for a special, you know, kids who were born with um, uh, deformities in their hips and their legs, they'd fly them from Africa and other parts of the world to, to Canada. And then they do they do surgery, and then they put them in these casts. <coughs> many, 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 many years ago, before we really understood flight physiology, and um, air would expand between the cast and the skin, and actually cause necrosis, like gangrene. And uh, so they learned that um, with altitude, you got to they call it bivalving. You've got to cut the cast, and then wrap it, so the cast is still there, but it can expand. Uh, so you don't get gas trapping under there. Um, so that's a problem. So uh, Boyle's Law is cool because gas expands in so many different places, like the middle ear, and that's called barotitis media. When you um, go up in an elevator, like on the CN Tower, you'll feel your ears pop, right? So it's a good idea to yawn or uh, chew gum or something so you can release that ear, that uh, uh, air trap in your middle ear. Kids, um, RU station tubes are a little straighter than kids. Kids are more rounded and they don't release air as easily so uh, you know you get kids who are cranky with altitude it's usually because they're um, they've got um, <laughs> air stuck in their gut and it makes them really uncomfortable like it's, it's like a gastroenteritis so they've got air in the middle ear so it's not a bad idea on ascent and descent to have the kid um, suck on a soother because that uh, helps them swallow and, and clear their eustachian tubes. But if they've got congestion from a cold, you know, no kid should be, uh, should be going onto an airplane because it, it, they'll just rupture their eardrums and that's uh, not, a not a nice thing. Um, I was, um, actually the, the year I graduated from the ambulance program, I, uh, I flew out to Vancouver to be with my girlfriend at the time. And um, um, halfway along the flight to Vancouver, uh, the right side of my face started to go numb. And as a new graduate from the ambulance program, I thought, <laughs> what the hell is going on with me? Am I having a stroke? And I'm doing like my own neurological assessment, right? I'm, I'm doing, I'm going like, okay, like my hands are fine and my legs are fine and everything else. And then we started on our descent and the right side of my face started to really hurt. And uh, so I got up uh, and went to the flight attendant. I said, I, not to alarm you, but the right side of my face is numb and it's really starting to hurt now. And she said, well, do you have a cold? And I said, yeah, a little bit of a cold. She said, that's why. She said, it's, it's just uh, the air in your sinus is contracting. And uh, that was my first lesson into Boyle's Law. I had no idea. My face hurt for almost a week. 
Um, yeah, it was quite amazing. Um, so you can get air, as I mentioned, uh, trapped between um, filling and a tooth. Uh, that's called barodontalgia, uh, sinuses, uh, GI tract. Um, like a lot of critical patients, head injured, multi-system trauma will have an ileus. An ileus is an impairment in um, peristalsis. And they have that because, you know, in a multi-trauma patient, you get a uh, sympathetic response, right? A fight or flight response. So blood gets diverted away from the GI tract and as a consequence, peristalsis becomes impaired <coughs> and air can get trapped. So most patients who get flown by air, either fixed wing or rotary wing, get a nasogastric tube put in place. And what's cool is, um, you put a nasogastric tube into these patients and you attach you, usually just a urinary drainage bag on the end of it. And with altitude, you can see the air, you can't, well, you can't see the air coming out of the stomach, but you can see the urinary drainage bag expanding. And then I usually just open a valve and let some of that air out. Hopefully it's not too foul, but it's, it's just coming from the gut, so it's not too bad, typically. Um, so chest injury, um, as a general rule, if, if you, uh, if you end up working on the helicopter, um, even though they fly at low altitude, like the greatest effects happen within the first 10,000 feet. And, and I saw um, gas expansion at 2,000 and 3,000 feet. With chest injury patients, if, um, if, if you fly out to a peripheral hospital and you've got a patient who's got, uh, let's say, rib fractures, like palpable rib fractures, but no sub-Q emphysema, no uh, x-ray evidence of uh, a pneumothorax, they'll usually get a put it, uh, they'll usually get a chest tube put it in anyway, prophylactically, so that if they've got a small pneumo that's gone undetected clinically or radiographically, that small pneumo can become a tension pneumo with flight, with altitude, because of Boas law. So you don't want to get into trouble. So uh, chest trauma patients get chest tubes prophylactically. A penetrating eye injury, interesting um, enough, you know, uh, we had a couple of people uh, over a 10 year period when I worked on the helicopter who were, who were shot in the eye with a pellet gun. Um, and um, you can't fly those people. Uh, and if you do fly them, you gotta fly them at low altitude. So we had one guy in Perry Sound who was shot in the eye with a pelican. And what happens Perry is, <laughs> so, so, uh, so shot in the eye with a pelican and it, it introduces air into the globe of the eye and that air can expand and it can cause protrusion uh, of uh, ocular content, right? Uh, which is not good. So, but you know, when you get a penetrating injury to the eye, you've got a limited amount of time between the eye injury and surgery. And so we flew him, but we flew at treetop level because uh, you can't pressurize a helicopter, at least not the ones I worked on. Um, so we flew at treetop level for that guy. So um, air travel would have been a relative contraindication. Uh, but we flew at treetop level. It was interesting. I went to, I'll tell you a story. It's, um, um, so I was working in the helicopter and Sikorsky Helicopters called me up and said, would you be interested in speaking at a conference in Mexico at uh, the Santa Lucia Air Force Base? And I said, uh, all expenses paid? And they said, yes. And I said, I'm there for sure. <laughs> so I guess they had a keynote speaker who canceled the last minute and they called me up two weeks uh, before the, conference said would you come talk so um, so I agreed to it and I went out there and my talk was on uh, preparing the multi-system trauma patient for air transport and um, uh, it was cool in so many ways so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you some stuff that's totally irrelevant to flight physiology but it was just kind of neat so um, there were about 800 delegates at the conference um, 
uh, mostly Spanish speaking, some English speaking. There was a mix of mostly military, some civilian, uh, all of them involved in medevacs. And um, th this conference was so long ago that uh, we used slide carousels. You know, there was no, no computer and PowerPoint. We used slide carousels. I, we actually had PowerPoint, but I had to take my PowerPoint slides to uh, uh, the, the media center at the University of Toronto, and they made slides for me and put them in the carousel. And anyway, uh, a couple interesting things. Um, a couple of days before I flew out to Mexico, um, I was talking to our pilots, and uh, uh, they said, do you have any pictures of ONT? ONT is a call sign for our Bell 212 helicopter. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I have at least one in there. And they said, you better take it out. I said, why? They said, because um, Toronto Helicopters sold ONT to a tour company in Mexico. And uh, four weeks ago, it went down into the Gulf of Mexico. And 13 people perished. They ran out of fuel. And it was a big thing in the news in Mexico. So I took ONT out of my slide presentation. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I get to Mexico. Uh, a guy who sells helicopters uh, picks me up and you can imagine if you sell helicopters for a living you got a lot of money right so he lives in Mexico City he picks me up um, he takes me to his house big house um, and then we go on a tour to Mexico City and uh, he tells me what to do to avoid getting pickpocketed so um, I always travel with my with my wallet in my front pocket right so I did that and I was cautious and he got pickpocketed which is awesome <laughs> boy was he ever pissed I said, did you have your wallet in your front pocket? He said, no. I said, no. Anyway, um, then the day of the conference, uh, we got picked up in a limousine, and we got to the Air Force Base, and we went into this office, and I met with, uh, uh, I met the Minister of Defense for Mexico, and I met uh, a three-star general and a couple of other people, and they thought I was the Minister of Health. And I had to explain, no, I, I work for the Ministry of Health. I'm just a flight paramedic. I'm just a paramedic who flies on the helicopter. Anyway, um, but they gave me the red carpet treatment. It was the most, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. So I get up on stage, 800 delegates, and uh, they tell me to not speak too quickly because there's a guy translating uh, into Spanish while I'm speaking. So I'm sort of taking my time. Oh, first my slides weren't working. So I'm standing at the podium and there's a glass of water and I, I take a glass of water and as a joke I said, mm, good tequila. And of course it gets translated. So like 10 seconds later, people laugh. <laughs> and and uh, what was amazing was I, I watched the other speakers and the other speakers were very stiff, right? They just stood at the podium, just very, really stiff. And I kind of walk around a lot when I'm speaking at conferences. And uh, when I said tequila, the laughter was like out of control. It was like, you know, people, it's not that funny, you know, but anyway. And so I'm walking around talking and I'm showing some images and um, at the end, oh, at the end. So at the end, there's somebody in the, the back of the audience who asked the question and he says, um, is it safe to fly a patient from uh, Acapulco to uh, Mexico City if they're a multi-system trauma patient. And um, I did a little bit of research in advance about their air medical system and the kinds of flights they do. And I knew that, that Mexico City was like just over 4,000 feet above sea level. Acapulco, of course, is at sea level. And so I gave this explanation about how <coughs> um, two things, you know, 
you got a multi-system trauma patient, you have two options, fly by helicopter and get them there in an hour, take them by land, it'll take about four and a half to five hours, right? So it's all about risk versus benefit. Um, if you're taking them by land, you're still gonna go from sea level to 4,000 feet. If you take them by air, you're just gonna go from sea level to 4,000 feet only quicker. Uh, but if, if it's a serious multi-system trauma patient who's human dynamically stable, you fly at low altitude and keep it at low altitude. Or alternatively, you put them in a fixed wing aircraft and pressurize to um, you know, a lower level uh, and adjust the pressurization. Anyway, after my uh, my talk, the, the cheering was unbelievable. It was like, um, I'm thinking like, who are you cheering for? Like, you're you know, confusing me for someone else. Um, and then a whole big crowd of people started to gather around me and they were so thrilled because the guy who asked the question was the medical director for the uh, entire uh, um, Air Force. And uh, he did not believe in flying patients by helicopter from you know, sea level to Mexico City, thought it was a bad idea. And I contradicted him. He just, he asked the question, I think, they, trying to confirm what he had been telling everyone. And I basically contradicted it, <laughs> he said. And so people were so thrilled and uh, wanted to bring me back to Mexico. I never got invited back to Mexico. Um, and uh, uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and then, um, um, we, we went to a house party uh, that evening uh, for a guy who um, owns a civilian, couple of civilian helicopters, very, very rich guy. He lives in a, uh, not a gated community, a gated house, big walls about the, the height of the ceiling or a little bit higher and a big gate in front of his house. And on the way in the limousine from uh, the Air Force Base to his house, we drove by mariachi bands and um, we sort of slowed down and rolled down the window and listened to them. And when we found a band that he liked, he called them over and invited them to his house to perform. And then uh, the evening of the party, they were there at the house performing. It was just the wildest thing. And uh, anyway, it was quite the experience. And, uh, um, but uh, that experience aside, uh, you know, I, there's some great opportunities for you to do some really interesting stuff in your career. And, uh, you know, when they happen, just take them. Uh, I sort of uh, hemmed and hawed about speaking in Mexico because it was pretty nerve-wracking to, to take on that thing. But I thought, hey, what the hell? Worst thing, worst thing can happen is they don't like me and uh, I get a free flight back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so you can get air in uh, a basal skull fracture. Air can enter the cranium. So the, the medical term for that is uh, pneumocranium. Layman's term, airhead, pneumocranium, right? It's a little code you can have, you know, when you're in a public place drinking and someone's standing around who's not too bright, you can just go, uh, pneumocranium, yeah. <laughs> uh, gas gangrene, uh, if, so, if someone's got gangrene, air in the tissue will expand and that's a problem, obviously. Uh, and beneath, uh, air beneath the uh, plaster cast. So, uh, air expands in medical equipment as well. So all equipment that uh, is used on medevacs is vetted through uh, the American Air Force. They have a testing center. I can't remember where it is in the US now, but I've been there. And um, including IV drip chambers, right? So um, if you've got a drip chamber, let's say you're on the scene and uh, you call for the air ambulance and you start an IV, 
make sure there's more water than just this. Make sure it's about halfway filled uh, because air will expand in the drip chamber and drive air into the IV tubing and then you know, the risk of air embolus. The risk is extraordinarily low. Now ET cuffs we fill with air, but um, you can fill it with fluid because fluid doesn't expand with altitude. Although I've, I've met lots and lots of flight paramedics over the years, some of whom work in Utah and other places with high elevations, and they routinely fly through the mountains at 10,000 feet and they don't inflate their cuffs with fluids, they say it's not a worry, but they also keep manometers on their endotracheal cuffs so they can actually monitor the pressure, which should be around 23 millimeters of mercury. Um, other balloons as well, ventilators, monitors. Uh, so summary, um, there are a number of effects with altitude. Helicopters are generally quite noisy to the point where it's very difficult, if not impossible, to auscultate. So you use your eyes and your hands quite a bit. Um, there are the effects of altitude, noise, turbulence, cramped. Much smoother in a helicopter than a fixed wing because the blades flex with, uh, with the wind. We had um, one of the helicopters I worked in at one time was a BK-117. Um, it's very popular in the United States. It has a rigid rotor system, so it, the blades don't flex as much, so you really get bounced around. We called it the Vomit Comet. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> I told you about air medical conferences, right? You gotta work AMS because the air medical conferences are massive, like eight to 10,000 people, uh, hospitality suites with free booze and live bands. It's unbelievable. My first uh, air medical conference in Boston, I woke up drunk in some hedges and had no idea where I was. Uh, and fortunately, I stood on the sidewalk sort of dazed until I saw someone who had like an aero medical t-shirt on. And I just followed them back to the hotel. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's it for flight physiology. Pretty basic stuff, uh, but definitely, definitely interesting stuff. Any questions about flight physiology? Okay.